0: This is David's Book Talk, bringing authors and book lovers together in a unique way since 2009. Visit us at davidsbooktalk.com and join the conversation at facebook.com slash davidsbooktalk. But first, pull up a chair, relax, and enjoy today's episode. Here's your host, David English.
1: Hello, and welcome to David's book talk. And you can hear our author in the background. He's eager to get started. His name is John Land. (laughs) And his book, his new book, is the Murder, She Wrote book called The Murder of Twelve. Hello. Hello.
2: Hi, David.
1: Hello. It's nice that you're anxious to get started. I like that. I'd like an author who's ready to go.
2: Yes, and now that now that we're recording, I'm I'm off speaker, so I want
3: to make sure that we're heard
1: well. Oh, good, good. So everybody can hear you. And although although your voice in the background vibrates, so it, it's probably heard even better. But now it sounds real clear now. There you go. No, you know what? You know how hard it is to get an author anymore. I mean, it's it, I mean it's so difficult. I've been going after some of these authors, and they just ignore me.
3: Well,
2: you're probably going off for famous, famous, successful authors, which is why you've turned to me, right? Because <laughs> I'm I'm readily available.
1: Well, no you're famous. You have <laughs> over fifty books. I mean, you don't publish fifty books like that. I mean, you must, you have to be somewhat popular to get that far. Uh,
2: you know what? I I think somewhat popular is a good way to describe me. Somewhat popular is probably that is 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 a perfect way to describe me.
1: But I don't well. It's hard if you if you don't want to. I mean, e- uh, let's face it, authors are like anybody else. They have egos. So you got to be uh-huh. careful what you say to them. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, I mean, I, I've offended authors. I'm very, I, I'm not, nobody, maybe nobody, well, you know Dennis Lehane. I did offend him one time. But, you know, it, you say something you don't mean to offend, and it just it just does, you know?
2: Yeah. That's the, the, I promise you won't offend me. You
1: know, really? I promise. You don't even know what I'm going to ask yet.
2: But I, I, it's impossible to offend me.
1: People, I just, <laughs> people out there are thinking, "Oh, yeah, you've probably sent him all the questions beforehand." I would, but you, you don't know anything about one. I,
2: I know nothing about you. <laughs> I know nothing about the questions you're going to ask, and that's the way. I, that's the way I prefer. It.
1: Exactly. It's like the psychics. They always say they've never met the person before, you know. But you know, they're you know they're being. I psyched. don't know. I'm I I I'm a believer in that stuff. Oh so, Yeah. Yeah. And, Maybe you should write a murder she wrote book about that. That's not a bad idea.
2: Uh, I, there were a couple. Th- there, there. They, psychics were featured in a couple of the TV shows spread about by, by And one of them was played by a famous actress, but I can't remember her name. Um, it'll come to oh, me. Oh,
1: you mean Patricia Arquette? Uh,
2: no. Oh no, that was a great show. That was that was Medium. But I'm talking about a show episodes of the
3: original Murder She Wrote TV show. Um, oh, so oh. that's Because basically,
2: David, to jump in a little bit, Don Bain, a wonderful writer in his own right, um, wrote the first 46 books in the series. But Don Bain had never watched a single episode of the show. And in his first book that he wrote, he has Jessica driving a car, which is sacrilege to any murder she wrote fan, oh because God. neither Angela Lansbury nor Jessica Fletcher ever got their driver's license. That's right. So... When I took over the series, I said I've never read any of the books, but I've watched all the shows. I want to go back and and write these books the way they would be written in 2020. In the case in that case it was actually 2017 because that's when I started after taking over the series. So, my goal and intention was to recreate no, almost novelizations of extended series. So you'd be able to hear Angela Lansbury in My Jessica. You would, you would see all your favorite characters. And, I would, and, and my instinct was, at least for the first handful of books, to remain in Cabot Cove. Right. I get criticized, David, um, at times, uh, rightfully so for diverting from the, the, the typical cozy format. I don't really know what the cozy format is. I think you write the best book you can, and people can label it whatever they want. Um, but it was important to me to, to capture Jessica in, in terms of coziness in her element, which is Cabot Cove, with the people, the staples in her life that we came to know so well Um, in the the long-running TV series. Sheriff Mort Metzger, Dr. Seth Haslett, Detective Harry McGraw. You know, every time you pick up a Murder, She Wrote book that I've written, all those people are going to be in the book. They're all going to be there. And in that sense, it's still a cozy because it makes you feel comfortable. It makes you feel like you're, Mm. you're visiting with old friends.
1: Right. That's what, that's well, Cozy's have of, a reputation for like small towns, same characters, everybody knows one another, kind of thing too. So that, and in that way, sometimes you'd be, sometimes that turns people off. I don't know why. But this book is so so different. It's I it would I would never consider this a cozy. Although,
2: well, you're making a great point, point. Um, and you I think you may have just defined the genre. Right. The thing is, that is not murder. She wrote. That was never the television show. Jessica was a worldly woman, and the show went all over the world for her episodes, and some some of the past books have done that. Um, They've taken her out of Cabot Cove. So you've just given the definition of a cozy, and you've just also explained in that definition, more or less, why Murder, She Wrote, was never meant to be a traditional cozy. Remember, when the television show came on the air in the 80s, they had the, the 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 term cozy hadn't even been invented yet. Hmm. So if I'm going back and recreating what I, in recreating the television show some of the greatest episodes like the murder of Sherlock Holmes which was the 90 minute pilot yeah. and murder takes the bus um, which is also in the first season um, that is kind of what murder of 12 is a homage to in addition of course to Agatha Christie's classic mystery, which may be the most famous mystery of all time, and then there were none, um, and that's what murder, The Murder of Twelve is kind of a modern day take on that great story.
1: It's, it's interesting you should mention that bus episode, it's one of my favorite episodes.
2: Yes, I loved it. That
1: and the one where they go to that cabin, that snowy cabin that gets snowed in, I love that one too.
2: You know, you're making a great point, because there is something elemental and something fundamental about a story set where people are trapped. And I don't know how to explain it. I think it stokes our deepest, most inbred fears. Right. that The claustrophobia of being stuck in a storm. You know, I think there's a uh, a warmth, you know, if it happens once in the middle of winter, it's okay if you're home. But if you're not home, if you're stranded on a highway, if you're stranded in an office building, if you're if you, if you can't get back and, and the world is holding you where you don't want to be.
3: Mm-hmm. That is
2: a very powerful theme, and it's what accounts for the success of so many mysteries um, and so many stories. Most recently, I guess, would be the Hateful Eight, the Quentin Tarantino oh, yeah. movie mm-hmm. that stranded eight people in the midst of a snowstorm at... Um, you know, at a road in the in the nineteen at the in the eighteen hundreds, because uh, it's a western, yeah. at a um, you know at a roadside bar restaurant whatever they you know a uh, saloon. Um, so there is a great quality to these kind of claustrophobic tales. The challenge with the murder of twelve was doing the one doing them justice, doing justice to. Um, Murder takes the bus. Doing justice to, and then there were none. Um, Because my goal is always not to do something as well. My goal is always to do it better.
1: Well, what's great about the murder of 12, your book, is that we don't know what's going on. And that's what drives us to read more and more and more of this book. What the hell is going on in this story? Who is controlling, and what are they doing, and why are they doing it? And we have to know that. And you, you have, that's why you have to get to the end. But it's so much fun to get to the end, and then suddenly it all, it all makes sense. But you don't know up until then what's going on. But you do leave clues, correct?
2: Oh, well, you know, I think there are a lot of clues. And the, 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 the fun of Jessica, the fun of writing Jessica Fletcher, and, and when I'm writing her I'm hearing Angela Lansbury um, in my head, is she has these unique powers of observation. She sees things. That other people don't see. That's right. all great detectives. That was the great thing about Columbo. He, um, he noticed facts and 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 evidence that no one else saw, and put was able to put the pieces together. In the in the murder of twelve, the image that most strikes stands out to me is when um, it's. The book is set at a family wedding, uh, or these these dueling sides of a wedding party have gathered at Hill House Hotel, where Jessica has been staying while her house is under renovation. And the moment that crystallized the book for me is when there's a slideshow playing over dinner, and when Jessica finds herself alone in the dining room, what she notices is... Um, The groom, we know, has a fraternal twin. So there's a toddler picture of these two fraternal twins in their cribs, in their nursery.
3: Mm. She
2: sees a shadow. There's a third crib in the nursery. What? What happened to the third brother? Then I knew I had something. Because once you bait that hook, once Jessica has realized something that now the reader is glued to, Mm
3: -hmm. I've
2: given you reason as the reader. You have to keep reading at that point because you've got to find and figure out who was in the third crib. And you're right. There are a lot of clues like that sprinkled in through the course of the story. Um, And some of them are there for the audience to figure out. Some of them are things only Jessica can see. Uh, but I had, this was an amazingly fun and challenging book to write. I don't want it to be a challenging book to read, but I know it's going to be a really fun book to read.
1: As long as we can, in a murder mystery, you have to be able to keep track of all the characters. That's that's, that's one of the problems I had. With, that's one of the problems I had with Perry Mason. They kept introducing new characters over. As much as I love Perry Mason, believe me, I do. But the characters, you didn't always understand where they all the how they all connected together. For some reason, the way Earl Stanley Gardner wrote, and it was just so different. I don't know why I had trouble with the characters. That's
2: such a great question, and I laugh, David, because. I've, you're right. I've written over 50 books. Um, I think I had a cast of characters in one of the nonfiction ones. Right. Um, but I also have a cast of characters in this one. Because when you've, when you've got 12 people on... This is, equivalent, this is like a stage play. Right. When you've got 12 people on stage at all times. And for a great portion of The Murder of Twelve... All thirteen, if you include Jessica, it's actually fourteen um, because you also have um, the manager of the hotel where everyone is stuck.
1: And you have a list of the characters in the front exactly. I
2: I've it. got that. They, so you, I can. And Because what, what I was finding was that um, I was ha- I had to keep going back um, to my notes, and I said, I just you know, and it was my editor at Berkeley. Give her credit, who said, "You need a cast of characters." because that because people aren't going to be able to follow 12 major characters who keep popping in and out but are always mentioned because the thing about the murder of 12 is once we get you know the first 50 pages are set outside hill house hotel and the last 20 pages the last 10 pages are set outside everything else is inside so you're not going anywhere else. The, the book is unfolding more or less in real time. As you're reading, you're in the hotel with the characters. You're stranded in that hotel. You're watching the snow pile up, and the sense of isolation, the sense of desolation, the sense of claustrophobia and abandonment is getting darker and darker. And then you know what you, and then look, part of it is predictable. You know the power's gonna go out you know phone service is going to be lost. You know the suspense is going to continue to mount. Right. Um, and I, I, I just had so much fun writing it because I don't have an outline when I start, David. And I, it's, I know you interview a lot of writers. It would be interesting to know how, what, what's the breakdown of, of people who outline versus the people who don't. So what was so much fun, it's always fun to do it that way, but was, what was so much fun this time was that I didn't know what was going to happen next any more than Jessica did, any more than you did when you were reading the book. Hmm. I had to find out organically as it happened. And sometimes that forced me to go back and plant different clues. Um you know, because I
1: did go back. Yeah, to at history. some point, though, you have to know. You have to. You have to know the killer, so you can leave those clues. So you can. So it makes sense. I. I don't know It's like you're flying blind. I'm amazed that you. You didn't outline it.
2: Well, in the case of that third crib, you're. You're. You're making a great point, because once I figured out the third crib, and who was actually in it, then I had a. No, a notion of what I was building towards. So you're right, there was that one thing I knew, and it was a question of how to get to it. I think, because this book also contains the classic locked room murder, where one of the 12, the murder of 12, not all of them die. I'm not giving anything away by saying that, mm-hmm. um, but one of the murders takes place in a locked, ba- in a locked bedroom portion of a suite. When they burst through, the man is dead. But where's the killer? He didn't go out the window, He didn't come, there's only one other ex at the door. So what happened to him? In retrospect, like any great movie that has a twist ending, The Usual Suspects, The Sixth Sense, um, Identity, like any great movie or book that has a twist ending, it's always obvious in retrospect. And when you go back and consider that one scene, what Jessica realizes she missed, because she's human, and she missed a clue. But if she had gotten that clue, the book would have ended about 100 pages much earlier. So right. it's it's a good thing she didn't. But that's what I meant before about ratcheting up the stakes,
1: the suspense. And what we have to remember is anybody can miss anything. And we, we say to ourselves, well, she's so brilliant. How could she miss something like that? But that just because you're brilliant doesn't mean you don't miss things.
2: Absolutely. Because she's not thinking what, turns out to be the case. It's not something anyone would think of. Um, but it, in retrospect, when you get to the ending, it makes perfect sense. And this is, this is kind of, it's a, it's a mystery that exists within a series of now 51 books, but it actually functions as a standalone. You can read this book and never have read another Murder, She Wrote book um, and get hooked immediately.
1: Well, the only thing you lose is, is the camaraderie between the characters, how yes. what they, how far back they've gone and how well they know each other. And and yes, yeah, so they do. They're they're, they're <laughs> they like to cut each other up. But that's <laughs> that's the fun of the that's the fun of the characters. They they're like that. They do that to each other because they love each other.
2: Yes, and and the interesting thing is there, David. Whenever you take over, well, it hasn't happened very often. Uh, there haven't, there aren't a lot of mystery series that have reached fifty books. You mentioned one of the few that has, and that's Perry, Earl Stanley Garner, Perry Mason. There were eighty-five books in the Perry Mason series that Garner wrote, and I believe there were others that others that other writers did when they right. picked up the series from him. So. Um, Sherlock Holmes, for example the, Arguably the greatest The most famous detective in history There were only four full length novels And about 45 to 50 short stories That's
1: it but, for, And he has, and we ahead. know for a fact That um, Conan Doyle didn't, After a while didn't want to write them anymore
2: No, she, she killed him off And the Queen made her Begged her to bring him back and, um, you know, there are, there are stories that Ian Fleming did the same thing with James Bond at the end of the book From Russia With Love, which is not, it's the second movie, but it was the fifth or sixth book. And at the end of From Russia With Love, Rosa Klebb gets him with the spike in her shoe. And the book ends with him falling to the to the floor. And you wonder, in that sense, was Fleming trying to do what Arthur Conan Doyle tried to do. I mean,
1: how do you keep a character fresh for, I mean, with Jessica Fletcher, 50 books, that's a lot of books, and to keep her as fresh in the first book, as in the 50th book as the first, it's got to be very difficult. Now, you, you, you've started, you said you started on 47?
2: Yes. My, uh, 47, yes I, started, I did 47, 48, 49 and But now, did you
1: go back and read the first 46?
2: Absolutely not I didn't I, I, <laughs> I, 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 I had read a couple of, I read a, a couple of them I read enough to know That I didn't want to write them this way And okay. I thought the writing I thought the writing was very good But the last five That I wanted to be up to date Were written not just by Don Bain But his wife Renee But I felt they were very well written but not very well told.
1: How many How many copies, do, do you know the figures, how many copies are sold of, of those, of, of the series so far?
2: Oh, you mean total? Yeah. Oh, my God. You know, that's a great question. And, and I would say, I don't, I've never asked that question. And they, you know, books sold more back years ago. I mean, just paperback was much bigger. And this was, before digital, I mean, um, I, I'm going to make, I'm going to guess somewhere around 20 million. Oh 50 wow! Million, ten million. Uh, I, I don't think that's. Much, I don't think it's a stretch that it's somewhere in that. Probably not twenty million, but probably in the area of ten.
1: That's a lot. I mean, that's a lot of books.
2: I wish I had written
1: and gotten paid for them all. Yeah, really. Now you. Now you have. This is book number fifty. This one, the murder. Fifty-one. One. This is fifty-one, and you, you've already completed fifty-two
2: fifty two is already up
1: and available on
2: amazon it's called murder in season and what I did the first three books i was you know I really wanted to learn what I was doing and and I'm you know i it was i had never written in first person I had never written um from the viewpoint of an older woman and I had never written a mystery I'm a thriller writer right. so um,
1: and, there, and that's a yet another question. What's the difference yeah, between and, a mystery and, and a thriller?
2: Well, we'll get to that, I'm sure. <laughs> but the, the thing for me was um, learning the process, learning to, to understand how to write a book like this. And then when I, when, when I got through the first three, which was where I had assumed the last contract Don Bain did but was unable to fill because of his declining health and then death, but then when I signed my first contract, Solo, um, what I wanted to do was, was write books that would freshen the series up, that would make it feel alive again after so many. So in book 50, and this was conversations I had with, the st- with, with my team, the editors at Berkeley, uh, the editorial director, Tom Colgan, this was, a, this was a team effort. And in book 50, for example, I wanted to do what no one had ever done before, on the TV show or the books. I wanted to introduce Jessica as a younger woman when she's still married to her husband, Frank. They're raising...
1: They're, oh, what a great they're, idea. They're
2: young, And I did it as a flashback, so it's within another story. And we, we get to watch Jessica solve her first murder. So there it was, book 50. Book 50 in the series, and you were seeing something you had never seen before. For book 51, they had the, uh, the, con- the notion of doing... A remake, essentially, of a, of the greatest mystery, the most famous mystery ever told, and then there were none, it was very appealing to me, because if you're going to be if you're going to be compared to something, if you're going to chase something, go after the best. And then I figured it was time to do a Christmas themed mystery, so I could bring back characters we hadn't seen in a while. So in Murder in Season, which will be released in November, um, the book that follows the murder of 12. Grady comes with his family, his, his you know, Frank, little Frank, um, Jessica's great nephew, and his wife, Donna. They come for the holidays. And, of course, they their, their presence ends up being very important to the solution of the murders. Um, I, I think when a writer is having fun writing, and I kind of got at this before, when you're having fun writing, The reader is going to have fun reading. People Mm -hmm. ask me all the time, what's the most important thing? What's the first thing you would tell someone to tell a a young writer or a beginning writer? And I used to say, tell a great story, beginning, middle, and end. It sounds easy, but it's actually not easy at all. If it was easy, a lot more people would be doing it. Mm -hmm. Um, Tell a great story. Now I've added something to that. I say, have fun telling a great story. Because nothing more is more, whatever you're writing. You, if you're enjoying it, if the process is bringing a smile to your face, if you look forward to getting back behind the keyboard, then the reader is going to look forward. To, as soon as they put that book down, they're not going to be able to. Uh, they're not. They. They won't be able to wait until they can pick it up again. I can't tell you, and this is the greatest compliment any writer can get. Um, besides being number one on the New York Times bestseller list. Uh, when someone writes you and say, or, or you go on Goodreads and it shows you how long it takes people to read the book, I can't believe people who've written me and said they read it in one sitting. On Goodreads, people, there are 50 people who've left reviews. Uh, some reviews are better than others, but almost every one of them read the book within two days. Um,
1: Which means not, they couldn't wait to get back to it. They
2: couldn't, or they just, and in some cases, they read it straight through.
1: Or they skipped their dinner and their like Ah, that.
2: that's all right. And you see, the thing is, it's a little shorter, even than the other murder. She Wrote books. It's 68,000 words.
1: Right, do so, you really want your readers to go hungry, though? Uh,
2: I, I want them to go hungry. I don't want them to go broke, because then they can't buy more titles.
1: That's right. Do you think there's so, people? Do you think there's people out there who have all fifty-one co- uh, 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 in the series?
2: That's a great question. Um, I'd like to see. What? I'd
1: like to see a picture of like all of them together on a bookshelf.
2: Wouldn't that be something? Because you'd see all the hardcovers. How how the hardcovers? Well, have, how
1: many you only have? You only own the ones you wrote, right?
2: I don't own any of them because they're actually uh, the books are actually owned. Um, the series is actually owned by the network, NBCUniversal. No,
1: I mean your own copies of them is what I mean. Oh,
2: yeah, yeah, I have my own copies. I have some paperback copies of some of the older titles, too.
1: Oh, really? Yeah, that's right. They were paperbacks, I forgot. Yeah. And they suddenly went to hardcover. This is a
2: series made for paperback. But, I mean, I, and I'm a paperback guy. I, I, I published my first 13 books in rack-sized mass-market paperback um, back in the day um, when that was, that's how you, you know, paperbacks were, like, for years and years, they were they allowed people to enjoy books at a much cheaper price point. Um, you know, paperbacks grew out of the dime novel. Mm-hmm. And then they you know, the first paperbacks were priced at 99 cents. Um, you know, Alistair MacLean, John D. McDonald, the people who really made the uh, Fawcett Ballantine, Betty Ballantyne, basically. It's a little another story, but... She basically created the mass market industry um, at Ballantines. Well, thank
1: God for her.
3: <laughs> she was a
2: great lady, and my publisher uh, worked for her. So he, I, 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 have so much respect for the great Tom Doherty, because he came up um, from the bottom and, and ended up owning his own imprint in Tor Forge, which is now uh, which is now umbrellaed under the the Macmillan brand. Um, but it's... It, it's How done. exciting
1: must that be to, to publish books, you know?
2: Well, I, I think, of course, uh, the, the challenges of it in this day and age. Yeah. It's a numbers game now. and you We
1: got a lot more people at home that are afraid to go out, so they need, they need to read. So they're reading. Maybe we have more readers. That's what I'm thinking.
2: Well, it is. Book sales are up. And um, bookstores, um, even though they were not considered essential, which is ridiculous... Um, even though bookstores had to close, they were able to do curbside.
1: There is, they're essential in, the, in that people need a distraction. I think.
2: I, I think there is a joy to reading, and what?
1: Well, if you ever, if you think of yourself, if you couldn't read for four months, it would drive you crazy. It would drive me well, nuts. It's,
2: it's especially the, when it's, if you're a writer, part of your business is being a reader. it's, it's what you do. No, writer. You can't be a writer if you're not a reader. If you don't love to read, you can't you can write. So
1: you've, you've written over 50 books now. I have. And have, you, are there, have any of them been agonizing to write, or have they all been a pleasure to write?
2: Some of the nonfiction is harder, because I also do nonfiction. Oh. Because sometimes when I do nonfiction, somebody gives me a mess, and I have to fix it. Um, and it's difficult.
1: Uh, you seem like a really brilliant guy, though. Just talking to you, you seem really smart.
2: Well, I'm, I'm, I'm talking from cue cards here. You know, I'm gonna, I make sure that...
1: Uh, <laughs> no, I, you're not. No, you're
2: not. No, 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 no. <laughs> so, you know, I think there are stages of books. But one of the, another thing I tell... Right, what, what, what separates the professional from the, the amateur writer, and I've been both, um, when you're younger, you go off on tangents, even though you know it doesn't feel right, but you keep doing it, and then you write 50 pages, 100 pages that you end up taking out. As you get older... And more experienced. When you get that feeling that something is off in what you're doing, you, you immediately stop. And you go back to where you lost your way and, and excise those four or five, six, seven pages and say, Okay, this wasn't this didn't go where I wanted to.
3: Right.
2: So you, you plug the gap
1: with something else. Uh well, what your 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 next book that's coming out you sent me a copy by the way thank you what is what, is that more of a thriller than a mystery
2: it is that's my series that that's me that's, so there's no
1: there's no murderer in it
2: oh there's a lot of there's a, the mystery isn't so much who the killer is the mystery is what are what is it they're going to do and how are they going to do it and in the case of in the opening scene of Strong from the Heart, number 11 in the Texas Ranger Caitlin Strong series, is a town of 300 people dies in a single night within minutes. Something killed them all. Something. The bad guys in the book did not do it inadvertently. The bad guys in the book have discovered a super weapon. They were building something else, they were making something else. This was an offshoot of that. Now, we don't know that at the beginning. So, in both a mystery and a thriller, you're putting a puzzle together. The writer is assembling a puzzle for the reader to disassemble and then put back and have fun fitting all the pieces where they belong. The difference is, in a mystery, it's about who committed the crime. In a thriller, it's about preventing someone from doing something much worse. So, A thriller is is basically about prevention. A mystery is about solving what's already happened. What I've done with Murder, She Wrote, (coughs) as you saw from Murder of Twelve, was Jessica's life is not only is she trying to solve a crime, to figure out who the murderer is, if she fails, she will be murdered too. She will die if she fails.
1: So, so she's terrified. I mean, she's and she's
2: very, you're right, she's scared. But that's more like, that's where the Murder, She Wrote series becomes more like a thriller because Jessica's life is in danger the same way Caitlin's, Caitlin Strong's life is in danger in Strong from the Heart. Um, so obviously there's a lot more action in my Caitlin Strong thrillers than there are in my Murder, She Wrote Mysteries. Um, there's, a, there's more of a sense of, of, of climax, of action, of gunfights, shootings. Um, you know, hey, more people die, <laughs>
1: no,
2: no exaggeration, more people die in the, in the prologue of Strong from the Heart than have been killed in the entire Murder She Wrote book series. Oh, wow. 300 versus 51 times however many. But it's certainly not going to reach 300. So how, how
1: old do you figure Jessica Fletcher is in this murder, murder of 12? How old is she?
2: I picture her as being somewhere around 65 or 66. Okay. Eternally. She never... Her life changes, but she doesn't age.
1: There's one scene where she goes outside, and, and I thought, oh, my God, she's really going to go outside by herself? And it freaked me out when I first read it. I was like, wow.
2: You know, that's a very good point, point. and here's the thing.
1: I mean, at sixty-five years old, I mean, people today are afraid to leave their house, but for, for a different reason. But
2: well, I, I'm sixty-three, you know.
1: But you sound like you're about forty-three. Well,
2: that's that's how I, I, I many will say that's how I look, and that's, <laughs> I probably feel more like twenty-five. Knock on wood. But remember something, Jessica, the Jessica Fletcher that I write is five foot eight because that's how tall Angela Lansbury is. We've established that she rides her bike, she jogs, and we've we established that because it 's winter she 's been jogging on the treadmill in the basement
3: gym of the hotel where she 's staying
1: so you 're saying she 's in good shape i 'm saying this is not a woman who
3: is adverse to physical situations because
2: she's in she, she is the she 's in excellent shape for a sixty five or sixty six year old woman but fact is, is that the reason she goes outside isn't because she wants to in the middle of a middle of, of Blizzard. She has to. She has to! Because right. she's the only one who can find the generator. And if they don't kick the generator on, everyone's going to freeze to death. So, right. they've got to get that generator on, or they're all going to be dead by dawn. Um, and that's... So there's no choice. And it doesn't make her any less heroic. It just makes the fact that it makes her more human.
1: Right. Exactly. You do what you have to do. And there's, there's sort of like an adrenaline thing with that, too. When you, you really have to do something and you put your mind to do it, you, have sort of a, you, you almost feel like you have sort of more energy to do it because you put your mind to do it. You're like, I'm going to do this. So you have that extra general, adrenaline rush going through you.
2: Well, necessity is the mother of invention. And I, I think that Jessica's heroism... Is rooted in any number of things. Ever since the TV series, she's almost so many of the cases she investigated were because someone had been falsely accused, someone she knew, and she had to prove someone else did it in order to get them out of jail. And so there's there's often a personal aspect to what Jessica is doing. She's fiercely loyal. Um, She's many things, but when when I think about Jessica. I think she was way ahead of her time. 1984 is when the series came on the air. Jessica was a was an independent, modern woman, a widow who did not need, who didn't define herself by remarrying or anything else. She had built an independent life for herself as a strong, independent woman in 1984. I wanted to bring that notion back, and it wasn't because of, you know, the, the Me Too movement. It wasn't, it wasn't a political decision. It was something I thought was a great way to resurrect and freshen up the book series in terms of story. By making Jessica that modern-day woman who doesn't define herself based on who she's married to, doesn 't define you know she she has a wonderful job, a wonderful
1: profession
2: she travels alone she
1: 's a little dependent on her friends, but not much
2: she's, you know what she 's dependent on her friends for rides and stuff like that because she doesn 't drive but I, but she uses uber now
1: and what 's great about her is she 's rich too
2: well we, which we don 't <laughs> get too much into, although you she is she as successful as she is she 's written Uh, I think she's written uh, just about the same number of books that I've written. I'm talking about J.B. Fletcher has written about 48 books, starting with The Corpse Danced at Midnight. That was the book that her nephew submitted to a publisher without letting her know, and in the pilot episode, The Murder of Sherlock Holmes. So Jessica becomes a best-selling author by accident. But now that she's so successful, yeah, she's made a lot of money over the years.
1: Exactly. So that makes it easier for her to right. race. She can do. She can go anywhere or do anything, and absolutely unlimited money <laughs> to a certain and, extent.
2: And again, she earned it all herself.
1: Right.
3: She
2: didn't inherit anything. She didn't. No one gave her anything. It's all her. And I think that gets lost. And and that's why I I so resist and 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 just turn away from the notion of labeling this as a cozy because. Murder, She Wrote is so much more than that because Jessica Fletcher is so much more than that. You know, there's never been, never, a character uh, in detective fiction who enjoys virtually 100% name recognition. It's almost impossible to find somebody who hasn't heard of Murder, She Wrote. Even young people know Murder, She Wrote. Thanks to the reruns And last year, they were made available on Amazon Prime. You could, If you had Amazon Prime, you could watch them for free. Right. Um, and many people did that. And some of the best ratings Hallmark Mystery gets is, is on old uh, Jessica Fletcher reruns. And none of the other older mysteries they rerun, Diagnosis, Murder, Columbo, um, they all do well, but none of them get the ratings at 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock in the morning that Jessica Fletcher gets.
1: Right. Right. Well, Angela Lansby, there's something so likable about her. I mean, she's so real and everything. Every time you ever see her, she's real. I mean, just a, a likable person. Just her personality comes through in the series, and you just can't believe in real life she's not as nice a person as that. I
2: think she, she very likely is. And the interesting thing is she wasn't the first choice to play Jessica. Gene Stapleton from All in the oh, Family yeah. Yeah. was the first choice. They went to Angela Lansbury.
1: I remember that.
2: And, and who knows how what, what it would have been like with Gene Stapleton. Angela Lansbury... It was just the perfect timing for her to do something like this. And she threw herself not not only into the character, but into the series. She produced the series. You know, she was responsible for... I mean, look at this, the guest stars that series attracted. Brian Keith, Chuck Connors, some of the biggest names of that era.
3: Right. And, they, and they, it
2: attracted them because they all wanted to work with Angela Lansbury. But I'll tell you a story that typifies what you're getting at, the story that very few people know about. Um, it's on the Internet, but it's... it's um, there was a... For, for three or four seasons, there was a character in a wheelchair, the librarian, the local librarian.
1: Madeline Rue, yeah.
2: There you go. Madeline Rue had lost her job on another TV show when she was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis and couldn't work regularly anymore. When she, if she had lost her, it, it, once she lost that TV show, she, she was going to lose her medical benefits.
1: Sag, what, a sweet, what a sweet thing to do! That's
2: just the way. That's just the way it is. And in, in, in Hollywood, anywhere else, you lose your job. So Angela Lansbury was friendly with her, and she basically wrote that role. And only she, and and Madeline Rue only appeared in about two episodes a season while she was on the show, but it allowed her to get a full salary. And to keep her medical benefits that's, that's the kind of person Angela Lansbury is
1: that's wonderful i know i actually know somebody that knows her so i i and he doesn't deal with people who aren't nice i mean he Good. doesn't and you know he and he's never t- and he's gotten me some big interviews but he never deals with anybody who who is impossible to deal with. He just doesn't. So, I, so I know for a fact that she is nice. And I mean, she's in her nineties now. She's she's still doing Broadway. She
2: is. She is. And if you remember, about seven years ago,
1: I wonder well, how she would like your book.
2: Well, that that I have I I dedicated. I don't know if it's the next one, or was it murder, The the Murder of Twelve? I think maybe uh, Mur- Murder in Season is dedicated to Angela Lansbury. Um,
1: uh, it's I, easy to forget when you've, you're writing multiple books, isn't it? it you know, <laughs>
2: with, with, as, you, as you probably <laughs> no, know... No, you
1: dedicated this one for oh, Angela Lansbury. It, it, it,
2: okay, it's this one. See, I forget.
1: Who brought uh, Jessica Fletcher to life. Even, even the authors forget,
2: too. Yes, well, I mean, <laughs> dedications kind of run into each other. But... Um, About 10, you know, some time ago, I think it was about a decade ago, CBS was ready to bring Murder, She Wrote back. And they had cast Octavia Spencer as Jessica Fletcher.
1: Oh, that's a good idea. They were going to
2: reboot it. They were going to start. And basically, Octavia Spencer heard that Angela Lansbury was unhappy, that she didn't want anyone else to play that role. And Octavia Spencer said, I'm out. I'm not going to do anything that upsets Angela Lansbury. And that gave me the idea... When I took over, I heard that story. Well, if you're going to reboot Murder, She Wrote, don't do it. Do it with Jessica Fletcher 25, 30 years in the past, played by a different actress, but then ask Angela Lansbury, a la Rod Serling in The Twilight Zone or Alfred Hitchcock, record the opening of every... Introduce every episode as a flashback saying, you know, as Jessica Fletcher saying here's a story you never saw on the on the you know in in my original you know in the original years uh, and basically introduce she would be introducing each episode the way Serling and Alfred Hitchcock did for those, and that way you form a bridge between the past and the present
1: and oh, probably, i wish i I would have loved to have seen Octavia Spencer at least one. she
2: would have been great but it but it wouldn't have been, but There is only one Jessica Fletcher. I also believe there's only one James Bond, but I'm old, so Sean Connery, no one's ever going to
1: be better. We need a good murder mystery series on TV again, I think. I mean, there aren't that many. I can't even think of one. There are
2: none as far as as the kind of whodunits that that dominated... I mean, they've got
1: they've got Lincoln Rhyme on now, but I didn't like Lincoln Rhyme. I started watching it; I didn't care for it.
2: And you know, they they it, it's a different. I think murder mysteries are considered to be dated. They're considered to be, they had their era back in the days of the NBC mystery movie when you had McLeod, McMillan and wife. Those were the days, Columbo.
1: That's when Banachek, Columbo remember Banachek? I
2: loved Banachek. That was the Wednesday night mystery <laughs> movie. Banachek was one of the best written series because I, I read the pilot was, was, was this thing where a football player disappears on the field, vanishes on the field. You're watching a football game and all of a sudden the guy is gone. Oh wow. So, and, but also George Pappard, uh, those great that great opening sequence with him sculling
1: up. Petricelli too? Uh,
2: I don't remember that one. It was that who was who played
1: That Barry Nelson not Barry Nelson. It was uh, Barry somebody. What was his it wasn't name? Barry
2: Sullivan, right?
1: No, 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 not Barry Sullivan. Well, I can see his face, I can't think of his name. Now, Barry right. Nelson's somebody different. No, it's you go Barry back, Nelson.
2: it was it you know, it was um
1: you know, what was like no I'm, I'm getting names mixed up I think. you'll,
2: you'll you know you, you'll think of it um, but because I, I remember Petricelli and I can see it too It, it wasn't Anthony Franciosa
3: um, no, no, but no. I can
2: see him. I can see the character right now um, Longstreet was James James Franciscus, but there was a wonderful tradition of mysteries. Uh, just like there was a, t- a period of Westerns where Westerns dominated TV, there was a period where private eye shows dominated TV. I mean, Hawaiian Eye, Surfside 6, 77, Sunset Strip, they were all the same show. They were exactly the same show with different settings and different ca- and different actors.
1: Oh, by the way, the name is Barry Newman. Barry Newman. Okay. Barry Newman. All right. People out there are lo- <laughs> looking it up, and I'm. <laughs> you got to let people know what the answer is, or they'll freak out. So it's Barry yeah, Newman, and, you know, and it's 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 interesting to watch the remake, and I haven't watched it yet, but it's interesting to see Perry Mason come back. Oh, it's wonderful. In a it's, different
2: inc- in, in you know incarnation. But I love stuff like that when you get when they're done well, and you meet Paul Drake, and you meet. You know, the, the, the secretary, Vera, Stella, um, you know, you. I, I, I'm waiting for Lieutenant Tragg and Hamilton Berger.
1: But what's, what's really interesting is that, that, that Paul Drake actually beats up Harry Mason in yeah. the second episode. It's fascinating.
2: But it's like, it's almost, <laughs> but it brings a smile to your face because you're seeing something being retold, the origins of how Perry Mason became Perry Mason.
1: Well, if you watch watch the old Perry Mason show, you realize they had a contentious relationship at times. They got on each other's nerves at times. But that's only natural when you're around each other so much.
2: And I remember the episode, one of my favorite episodes, is when um, Mason defends Paul Drake of murder. Paul Drake's in jail.
1: Um, I have not missed any episode of Perry Mason. I have not missed any episode of Murder, She Wrote. I mean, all these shows are just...
2: Would you agree that... The best Perry Mason episodes, though, were the ones that had Hamilton Berger before he got lung cancer and had to cut
1: back. Oh, yeah. Well, absolutely. There was
2: was something about his battles with Perry Mason. He never won any of them.
1: When when they did the TV movies and Hal Holbrook took over, he did a great job.
2: Interesting, because there's a... Now, there really isn't too much of a resemblance. Hal Holbrook has a similar... You know, he's that kind of character actor who can take over a role. Um... You know, because it's very
1: difficult to play someone who was that iconic in that role. Oh yeah, but he he really he really nailed it, and not and he, and fully was, no, but but he came awfully close. He came so close as I wanted more after the after the four that I saw him in. I wanted more. I, I was hoping they'd make it into a series, but no, nah, not so much. I, I guess. I mean, I don't think Hal Holbrook is going to be stuck on TV for a series.
2: Hal Holbrook anyway. did a. Right around the time of of the mystery movies, he was in a series. There was a there, there was a rotating wheel, on I think it was CBS. Might have been uh, I think it was CBS called The Bold Ones,
1: oh and, God, he, yeah. and
2: he played the senator. And it was great, great television.
1: Well, he knew um, he knew how to act. I mean, he knew he was a stage trained actor.
2: He also had the great one-man show with, with Mark Twain.
1: And he's still he, alive. He's like 95 years old. Yeah, he's he still gone.
2: He was 90 when he did Into the Wild. He had And he was nominated for Best Supporting Actor in the movie Into the Wild, starring Emile Hirsch. God bless him. He, The
1: man just keeps going on stronger than ever.
2: Wonder, wonderful. There are moments in that movie. of you know, Hal Holbrook, he's also uh, killed it in Wall Street as the, as the moral center of the movie, along with Martin Sheen.
1: You know, I have never seen Wall Street fully.
2: You need to, it is a timeless film. It is right up there with The Godfather and Jaws as far as movies that will never get old. Because right. it's about, you know, besides the technology and Michael Douglas's gigantic cell phone, the story resonates and it continues to resonate because it's about greed. It's, it's all the Shakespearean...
1: Isn't it interesting how greed is just a timeless thing? It'll never stop. Never. <laughs>
2: it's also interesting because if you look at what Wall Street has begot us, the the, the, the sons of Wall Street, the forebears of Wall Street, are shows like Succession on HBO and Billions on Showtime. Right. Stories about fabulously wealthy, powerful men who's, who are defined by their money. The difference is, In Wall Street, there are characters who offer a chance at redemption. There are alternatives to Gordon Gekko. There are chances for characters to do right. The the sons of Wall Street, Succession and Billions, are the antithesis of traditional storytelling. Because there is absolutely no one in the series to root for. Neither series has a hero.
1: Now, which one is Paul Giamatti on? Is he on Billions? He's on Billions. Paul Giamatti is, what was the movie he did that really, really defined him was Cinderella Man. Oh my God, he is just tremendous in Cinderella Man.
2: He is, I don't think, he's one of those actors who never gives a bad performance. And you know, we're talking about that, there's an irony to Angela Lansbury playing Jessica Fletcher. Because the character she is most compared with is Miss Marple, Jane Marple. Oh, yeah. Agatha, one of Agatha Christie's other series. And for my money, those Agatha Christie movies with Miss Marple, the old black and white ones, she was played by four different actresses, five. Martha,
1: Margaret Rutherford is one and of them. Very
2: good, because I thought it was uh, Dame Edith Evans, but it wasn't. She never played her. But Angela Lansbury was the last actress to play Miss Marple. And then five or six years later, she got offered Jessica Fletcher. Wait,
1: wait, she she was in the one with Elizabeth Taylor, wasn't she?
2: I don't remember. I didn't even see it. I just saw that it was it, 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 she. It was the last one they made, and I think it might have been a TV movie,
1: right? A made for not a, not a theatrical. What film. What's that called? Yeah, it was. And I think Elizabeth Taylor. Something about a, there was a big party or something. I can't remember that. That either.
2: would figure. That that would figure.
1: Uh, but I just remember Elizabeth Taylor being in it. And I don't know why she st- I, I guess she just stuck that in my head. I think I thought I thought that was a theatrical movie. It might have been. I, I think it, it was. A
2: movie, but I'm not 100% sure. Yeah.
1: yeah. but you but you're right. I mean, she, uh, of course they're going to compare her to Miss Marple, but there's so much more to 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 the challenge, the challenge for a
2: writer taking over a series like Murder, She Wrote, writing a book like The Murder of Twelve, is so much of, of Jessica Fletcher is ingrained in people's heads. And the problem, the biggest challenge I face is that I'm going by the mythology of the movies, of the TV show, sorry, not the books. So when I get a letter, or an email, an email, a note from someone, or I see it on Amazon, and they give me one star or they criticize me because in the books, Mort Metzger divorces his never-seen wife, Adele. We never see her in the TV show. She just gets mentioned and marries someone else. Well, I didn't know that because I never read the books. So in my, in my version, Mort is still married to the never-seen Adele, who we meet for the first time ever in Murder and season. She comes for Christmas dinner at Jessica's house. Um, oh, wow. And in Murder in Season, we also see Mort Mesker's red Eldorado convertible um, for the first time. But there are other learning experiences that came with this series. When I took it over, and this is where I made mistakes, because you have to own up to your mistakes. Right. Um, I thought in, in updating the series... We're a much more familial, uh, colloquial society now than we were in the 1980s. When we were, everything was Mr. and Mrs., Sir and Ma'am. Now everyone is first name basis. Everyone's on a first name basis. So I thought it was unrealistic for Mort to call Jessica Mrs. F. He would call her Jessica. Well, I did that for two books, part of a third. And I, so many people, and not just... Readers, I didn't know, but people I, I I did know who knew the series were saying this isn't right. It's Mrs. F. You've got to you got to refer to her as Mrs. F. And that was a mistake. Hmm. Not doing that right from the beginning because it was a conscious it was a conscious decision on my part.
1: Well, what is he, what does he do in this book? I can't remember. Mrs. F. It is Mrs. F. Okay.
2: All the time. Now there, whenever it gets real serious. Whenever he's, I think there's one time in this book where he says, "Listen to me, Jessica," because he's 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 scared for her that she's alone. So when he gets when they start getting,
1: um, well, people are really they notice everything, don't they?
2: They do, and um, you know,
1: don't they people, don't they annoy you like crazy?
2: No, now? <laughs> it, it shows. Yeah, well. Uh, if if you don't if you if they annoyed me of course they you always then the, if,
1: if as long as you buy my book you're not annoying me.
2: <laughs> look, if the if you're if you if you're going to ignore the 10 one star reviews on Amazon, then you have to review you have to ignore the ninety five star reviews on Amazon. And instead, what you do as a writer is you read those one star reviews and you see if there's anything in them that's legitimate. And in some cases, it's just, a, it's just a reader's opinion. They didn't like the murders. They didn't like the danger. They didn't like the change in tone from the previous books. And that's their right. Uh, but once in a while, it's the, the thing about Mrs. F or, um, you know, who taught Jessica her first flying le- or what kind of plane she learned to fly in. Right.
1: Um,
2: you know, there, there are things that you want to get right if you possibly can.
1: Well, you're working on them.
2: You, and, and that's, uh, well, writing is a, it, it's, it's an ongoing process. See, the danger of writing a, a, a continuing series, tw- two books a year that has been going on as long as Murder, She Wrote, the challenge, as it is with any series at any level, is not to get stale and start writing the first, the same book, over and over and over again. That's why when you look at books 50, 51, and 52, these, these three that I'm, my three books that that were merged, wrote, uh, the murder of twelve is in the middle. That's why they're all so different. Because I didn't want to do the same thing again. I wanted to make sure that every one of my entries in the series was distinguished by something. I'll give you an example of where the next one might go. Uh, now I don't know what the future of the series is with COVID and everything. Book sales have, you know, there's some book sales have taken a tumble. So we have to just wait. But mm-hmm. I would love to, Jessica is out in L.A. where they're filming a streaming series based on one of her books. So it's a streaming series. It's being made by Netflix, right? Mm-hmm. It's there. She's in Los Angeles. And there's a murder on the set. An impossible crime. LAPD sends a detective to investigate. It's Columba. Uh, And and Columbo was made by NBC Universal, just like Murder, She Wrote was. Columbo was produced...
1: Would they, they let you do this?
2: I don't know. I haven't asked yet. Uh, um, m- Murder, uh, Columbus Well, let, it,
1: let us know what they say. We're all dying to know.
2: Well, I think <laughs> I, I think a book.
1: Raincoat and all, huh?
2: Team, uh, everything. <laughs> same car, same... The, Mrs. Fletcher. My wife is the biggest fan of yours. Could you sign a book for her, Mrs. Fletcher? Right. Please. Thank you, Lieutenant. It would be my pleasure. You could just see them feeding off each other.
1: I think I think he would annoy her, though.
2: The hell out of her! Are you kidding? (laughs) He would annoy the hell out of her. But it would be wonderful because she would come to respect how good he was at what he did, and that. You know, and Mort Metzger and 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 Seth Hazlitt would both be visiting her on the set, and then Harry McGraw is going to show up too. So Harry McGraw and Columbo together would
1: be worth the price of admission. Yeah, but how are you going to get them all on the same set? I mean, it's just a. I mean, I, it, you're just going to bring them all. They're all coming out at once. Well, they're all
2: visiting. Well, the three, the, the two, Seth and 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 Mort are visiting Jessica in L.A. Um, no. And Mort, no, I
1: like the. I, I love the idea. I'm just. I'm just.
2: Yeah, it's you know what. It's one of those things where the idea may be too big, but it's just like my challenge as a writer is to make every.
1: Well, but but naturally, Jessica would have to solve the crime before Columbo.
2: They would. I don't know what would happen, but see, my job, no matter what I'm writing, in a series, my own or she wrote, which is now my own because I take ownership. But you
1: can't have. You couldn't have. What
2: what what you do what what is to make every single title seem fresh and original to make every single title as energetic and fun as the first
1: you make it sound easy
2: it isn't well you know what when you it, it's it's important it's not easy but um it's kind of like what samuel johnson said well, about a dog walking on his hind legs it is seldom done well but you are you are you are surprised to be seeing it done at all so um but, who, but who, of that,
1: how do you know that it's fresh and exciting? And I mean, do you know it after you are done it?
2: I'm, I know it as I'm writing it because I'm the first person to okay. read anything I write. So how
1: do you know you can do it? How do you know you can pull it off time after time after time?
2: Um, because if, if I finish a book and, and, and I don't have the immediate desire to start the next one in the series, I, I know that it's, got, it's gotten a little stale. That it isn't what it was before, and I need, to, I need to find in the next book a way to make it fun again, because writing is about fun. It, it, it has to be fun, as I mentioned before, fun for the reader, but especially fun for the for, for, for fun for the writer. But it's got to be fun for the reader.
1: And it's interesting when you were mentioning about taking a, a, a node a note from the classics. Um, when that book, A Girl on the Train, came out, well, that's, that's a homage to Strangers on a Train. Or one of, uh, or other books like, I think there was one called What Mrs. McGillicuddy Saw by Agatha Christie. Uh-huh. There, there, there's, a, there's a very similar book to that, uh, The Girl on the Train. The Girl on the Train is a wonderful book. I loved it. But you, you think, wow, all they did was take a, from another classic and and put their own original spin on it.
2: Victor Hugo once wrote, "Good writers borrow; great writers steal." And,
1: <laughs> Did he really say that?
2: Yeah, and it's also been uh, yes. either that. Yeah, I, I've seen it also attributed to Picasso, great artist. But
1: as long as it's not an obvious steal, I mean, and, it, it's, well, it's
2: inspiration. It's 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 you no. Know, all writers start off imitating their favorites, and the same thing is true of painters. The same thing is true of musicians. Until you get your own level of confidence. I started off basically stealing from Robert Ludlum, Stephen King, David morell Clive Cussler. I could take you back to my early books and point out scenes and tell you exactly where I stole them from.
1: Right. <laughs> uh, but none of, those, none of those writers even noticed.
2: Of course not, because there, was, there were more differences in, in almost anyone else's mind. No one else reading them would, would say, oh, you stole this from, no, I knew it. But it wasn't that, It wasn't so blatantly obvious. And there's nothing wrong with that, um, because it's how we learn. It's how we grow. If you look at why is it always easier, if you have two dogs, to train the second dog? Because the second dog is already... It's, it's easier because the second dog is watching the, fir- the older dog. And it's learning from the older dog. We all learn by observation.
1: Um, well, you, you... Like your next... The next digestive book you're going to write does the idea totally come from you or does your editor does, does your, is your editor able to say here's I have some ideas you know that's a great question and
2: I believe heavily in team efforts and I believe ever uh, and I, I am a huge believer in brainstorming. Um, many of the best things I've come up with have been in collaboration with editors or other people you know in, you know, who are involved in my career um, and it's a matter of saying, what, I, and just having a conversation. And I may have a very rough idea. And that's how some of these books start, as a very rough idea. And then a couple conversations with my editor, or what I'll do is, I'll write up a one-page summary of what I wanna do. And then my editor reads it and says, well, let's, what, about what about this, what about this, what about this, what about this, what about this? And a lot of that what about, that's the two, two of the greatest words. What if is a great, is a great phrase. For writers, what about dot, dot, dot? When someone says, hey, did you think about doing this? And, and sometimes I get a chill and I go, oh my God, that's right. perfect. And it happens at every stage of the book. Um, you know, I had a Caitlin Strong book, my favorite in the series, uh, called Strong Light of Day. I think it was the sixth or seventh. Um, and there are 11 now. Sixth or seventh. And in this book, there was one thing I, I had never been able to figure out, and I was right down to the final draft, and I still hadn't figured it out. And somebody else, and this is why it's important to get new, you know, I have beta readers who read my, my stuff at different stages, and I have one reader who's a professional book reviewer and a, and, a, and a good writer in his own right, and he read the manuscript and said, well, what if blank is blank's father? And I went, oh, my God. And the whole book. And that was the last draft. Mm. And then the whole book fell into place. You can never avoid, as a writer, those magical moments where something someone says or something you realize, all of a sudden. um, You know, I've had books where I was struggling halfway through and I said, these two characters, I'm having trouble with them. And then I realized these two characters were really one person. Hmm. And I had been writing one person, but dividing them into... T- so I went back, and it, and kind of like... I'll give you an example of this. I've, I saw this interview, or read this interview, with M. Night Shyamalan.
3: Hmm.
2: And he never admitted... He won't even admit this anymore, that it's true, but I, read, I know I read the interview. And M. Night Shyamalan was asked how he came up with the idea for The Sixth Sense. And he said well, I didn't really come up with that idea. And it was like, what? Um, What do you mean? He goes, well, I set out to write a movie about a failed psychiatrist who achieves redemption by by counseling a young boy who thinks he can see dead people, only to realize that the boy really can. Um, And then... He's writing the story about an alienated man who has no, who's so alienated and isolated from the world that he can't even talk to anyone. And then halfway through the movie, he realized that that character was a ghost. And when he went back to write, rewrite those scenes in the screenplay, he realized they were already written just the way. It's almost like his subconscious knew something his conscious didn't. Sometimes you're not writing the book you think you're writing, and part of what Hmm. separates a really good writer from a not-as-good writer is willingness to let the story take you where the story wants to go. Um, That's what I did with Murder, She Wrote. uh, I keep calling it that, but it's really... With The Murder of Twelve, I'm going to give you an example. The thing that stuck out with me, one of the things I found brilliant in the book, and then there were none, by Agatha Christie, was every time... A murder happens. One of the figurines of the ten little boy, you know, the 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 ten soldiers goes missing.
3: Right.
1: Exactly.
2: And it's the nursery rhyme. The people are being killed by something that's thematically close to the nursery rhyme. And then, but I didn't have anything like that in the murder of twelve. And I said, I, 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 it just wasn't there. And I was accepting that. But then I realized, what if there were a grandfather clock? Now I'd already written half the book. So I went back and inserted a grandfather clock in the lobby. You'll remember the scene. Yes. And when it goes off at midnight, everybody turns toward it, and they see the one and the two, the Roman numerals, have been crossed out. And then when as, as the book goes on, every time someone is murdered, someone there's another Roman numeral crossed
1: off. You borrowed a great idea from somebody.
2: Absolutely. But that wasn't something that was that I had planned to do. It was something that came to me organically in the process of writing the book. Some people can think creatively and tap into the part of their subconscious when they outline. I can't do that as well. Um, I I do write these one or two page treatments or synopses just with the broad strokes so people will get a general idea about the direction i want to take a story in a book in and that but as far as the connective tissue the thing that bonds the book together and um brings it to life is a good way of putting it brings the characters to life are things i'm not aware of i'll give you an example from murder in season I didn 't know when I started the book that Jessica's nephew Grady, who she raised after his parents she raised with her husband Frank after his parents died in an accident. I didn't know that Grady had been fired from his job. I didn't know he was going to go off on his own and he needed he was going to ask Jessica for help to do that, mm-hmm. to establish his own business. but something pushed me in that direction, and I guess what it is. And what makes me not uh, capable of writing a cozy is I think every scene needs to be defined by some form of conflict, some revelation. At the end of every scene, we want to know something that we didn't know before. That's a very high bar for a writer to set for himself or herself, but it's very important
1: because... It doesn't. It doesn't stop you from being a writer. It's a challenge, but it's a huge challenge.
2: It, it, it's a, it's what makes you. A, it's there's a difference, David, between a writer and a storyteller.
1: I mean, does a writer ever not? Is, is there ever a point where a writer can't write anymore? I mean, Stephen King threatened to retire, but look where that went—nowhere. <laughs>
2: well, you know that's the first. But Stephen King's an excellent example because Stephen King is one of the writers who made me want to do this. And a few years ago. When I thought it was impossible to scare me anymore, you know, I, th- I didn't think a book could scare me anymore, I read Dr. Sleep, and it had nightmares, um, literal nightmares. But
1: the movie is a mess, though. I,
2: I didn't think it was that bad. I-, I actually liked it. I thought the Rebecca Ferguson, who played Rose the Hat, was brilliant. The Crow was good. I thought The Girl was good.
1: Well, that's the thing. Some of the elements are good, but it's a very odd movie.
2: It is. I think the book was more literary than it was, and I think it's harder to capture. But the point I want to get at with Stephen King is he was brilliant in his youth. And then he went through a stage where where I thought his books were unreadable when he was writing The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon.
1: Insomnia. Insomnia is a...
2: Insomnia and The Regulators and... Bag of Bones, and it's like I gave him up, but then he got me back again with the Mister Mercedes trilogy.
1: Oh yeah, that was wonderful.
2: And Doctor Sleep. I'm reading The Institute now. Um, I thought eleven twenty two sixty three was one of the most brilliant brilliantly conceived but bloated stories. It was two hundred pages too long, um, but it was so you can lose it and get it back.
1: but so in other writers, words, you got bored in the middle of the story.
2: I I got bored once he got was started following Oswald around because I didn't care I wasn't reading the book to find out what Oswald had for breakfast where he lived
1: because if you're really enjoying the story the length of it does shouldn't matter
2: it shouldn't but what but I think King King got so impressed with the research and the day by day. Uh, diary effect of Oswald that he started writing a different kind of book because the, the yellow card man and um, all the stuff that is classic Stephen King when when, when he just the, the way the world is coming apart every time you know he goes back in time is worse you know um, there are so many wonderful elements in that book but there was a period in the book before we get to the end where there's like 300 pages that should have been 60 or 70 or 80 pages. That's all. That's criticism. Stephen King is on my list. If people ask me, who, who are the people that you'd most like to meet? And one of the first two people I always say are Stephen King and Barack Obama. Because um, they're two people I admire among the most for different, entirely different reasons. But Stephen King is a brilliant storyteller. Um, and that's what I wanted to get what I meant before. Writers put words down on paper and tell stories that have a beginning, middle, and end. Um, and that's not, that's, that, that's not an easy thing to do. A storyteller does the same thing a writer does, but a storyteller has a hundred different stories because each scene is, has its own beginning, middle, and end. And that's, the brill- that's not the brilliant, that's the fun and the beauty of The Murder of Twelve. Because if you really look at every single scene, mm-hmm. they all begin, they have a middle, they have an end. And they're strung together um, with conflict. Um, a conversation between Jessica and someone else will—that's ne- it's, it's, why they're why Mort and Seth are—and are they, they snipe at each other um, because I think it's more fun when people are talking and they're having—and they're not just describing what the how they bake cookies and how they you know what's their what's your recipe for toll house cookies and then they argue about the relative merits of toll house cookies
1: exactly exactly
2: and, and the thing is if when you if i'm going to describe a tree in a book it's going to because, be because it's because that there's a sniper in that tree or there's a clue around that tree everything has a purpose Nothing. There is no wasted motion. There are no wasted words. Um, It's, you know, that that's very important to me. I find, I, I said something in an interview recently, which you know, it's funny. I'm 63. I've written 50 plus books, and yet I'm still learning things myself. And I said the mark of a great book, especially Murder, She Wrote. Why? Because it's first person. The story, it's, everything is Jessica Fletcher talking to you as the reader. So what I said was the mark of a great story, the mark of a great book, is that the reader thinks it was written just for them. No one else. Just for them.
1: Well, we 've been talking so long. this has been wonderful i mean i I hate to cut it all short <laughs> it 's just been a, an absolutely well, incredible
2: let 's do, ag- do it again when strong from the
1: bone comes out jo- I angel mean, you and I literally could talk all day we could. and there 's so many things that there 's so many wonderful things we could say and uh, and bounce off each other it 's been I, I can't tell you how wonderful it's been. It's and I want to mention the book one more time. It's called Murder She Wrote: The Murder of Twelve. It's out in hardcover from Berkeley Books, and I really enjoyed it. I really, really enjoyed it. I'm looking forward to Murder in Season. And don't forget Strong from the Heart. And strong from the Heart. That's in July, August. Yeah. Yep, you're gonna, you're gonna, you know, you. you, you it is July now. It's <laughs> July. Month. It's July 28th, so <laughs> <laughs> it'll be out later this year. Exactly. Oh yeah. Right in time. Right in the right in the hot season. There so it can, is. Perfect can, summer book. So you can sit in your bedroom, turn the air on, and enjoy the book. That's the point. <laughs> and there you go. <laughs> you are just a wonderful guy, and you're so. <laughs> Thank you, David. You're so easy to talk to, and so, so wonderfully forthcoming. It's it's just a refreshing, wonderful thing.
2: If you always tell the truth, you never have to remember what you said. That's right. <laughs> And this has been David's
1: Book Talk. We'll talk to you next time.
0: You have just enjoyed the podcast of David's Book Talk, brought to you by your host, book lover David English. Please visit us at davidbooktalk.com, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and subscribe to our podcast. We want to hear from you, and we don't want you to miss our upcoming shows with top authors like Mary Higgins Clark, Patricia Cornwell, Lisa Scottoline. Jackie Collins, Nelson DeMille, Michael Connolly, Sue Grafton, Steve Martini, Dale Brown, David Baldacci.